National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Last fall, we did a lengthy series of shows on the U.S. intelligence community. We covered members of the community to include NSA, DIA, NGA, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the FBI, and even the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. We're going to look at another aspect of the U.S. intelligence community for today's show. To frame today's topic, I want you to think about the Defense Department's high-tech advanced research organization, which most people will know as DARPA. DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. The U.S. intelligence community has a similar organization, which is called IARPA. IARPA stands for Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, and the work is in, this entity does each year is groundbreaking stuff. Uh, with us to discuss IARPA is the director of the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, Dr. Catherine Marsh. Dr. Catherine Marsh became director of the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity in November of 2019. She's responsible for investing in high-risk, high-payoff research that has the potential to provide the United States with an overwhelming intelligence advantage. Prior to this assignment, Dr. March was the chief scientist for the CIA's Directorate of Science and Technology from 2016 to 2019, where she was responsible for ensuring that leading-edge science and technology underlies current and future mission capabilities. From 2013 to 2015, she actually served as IARPA's deputy director. Prior to joining the CIA in 2001, Dr. Marsh led the industry team that put lithium-ion technology on numerous platforms, including NASA's Mars Exploration Rovers Spirit and Opportunity. Her work at CIA continued this trend and included innovation in, ser in serval capacities to develop new power solutions for the intelligence community. Dr. Marsh is a director of National Intelligence Fellow and member of CIA's DS&T's Distinguished Expert Cadre. She holds a bachelor's degree and doctorate in inorganic and analytic chemistry from Brown University. Uh, Dr. Catherine Marsh, welcome to National Security This Week. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Are, are you uh, at uh, the activity this morning in the offices there? No, I'm across the street um, uh, where we can do uh, unclassified things uh, and we can do communications like this. We can't do that from inside of a skiff, right? Right. So you walk into that building where IARPA is and everything is super classified. Is that how we should think about it? Uh, for the most part, yes. There's parts <laughs> of the building that are actually un uncleared uh, because we actually have a university that resides in the same building where we are. But once you go uh, upstairs, you pretty much have to have a clearance. <laughs> so All right. That makes good sense. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Marsh, I, I generally like to learn a little more about uh, my guest's background at the start of our show. Uh, sure. What was, it, what was it that drew you to study chemistry? And, and can you tell us about your journey into the U.S. intelligence community from industry? Uh, you left some amazingly cool projects like the Mars Rover Program to join CIA in 2001. Uh, there has to be a great story in there. Well, thanks. So um, if you can think back to July 20th, 1969, right? We had just landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong did that amazing one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And I was a little kid and uh, I was like, that is so cool. How could you possibly do that? That is so amazing because I, it was a miracle, right? You know, to me, to think about how do you do that? And, and I'm with my family and we're watching that on a black and white TV, 13 inches, right? You know, so you can tell how old I am, but that's all right. It's because that is what started me in asking questions, right? Being a scientist is about asking a bazillion questions about everything, the who, what, when, where, why. And so I got very interested in um, doing that kind of stuff. I really like to cook, cooking is chemistry, right? But when I was in high school, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a surgeon and I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to go to um, school and, and make a ton of money. Well, you know, I, then I went to college and, and I'm blessed because I got a, a scholarship to go to Brown and I took biology and I found out that was just not for me. And so we were 
I had the choice, right? I'm taking chemistry and bio and chemistry was just so fascinating as you, you know, especially in inorganic chemistry, right? When you're doing reactions, you've got all these color changes that are going on and all of this, which is spurning the curiosity of what's going on. And so when I finished uh, grad school, though, there were not so many jobs, um, which is how I ended up going to work for the Navy. And I worked on the development of propulsion systems, so torpedoes, for um, uh, underwater vehicles. And, you know, high power energy systems for a torpedo, good day is uh, 15 minutes and a bad day is six and a half, right? So you're working on that. And I spent 10 years doing that. And then I went out into uh, industry, uh, you know, part of part and parcel of that is we weren't, uh, I was curious about doing other technology developments. And so I went to work for a small company in uh, Connecticut at the time. It was called Yardney Technical Products. And uh, today that's owned by Eagle Pitcher. But regardless, I worked on uh, lithium ion and the early days of doing that. And believe me, in the early days, it was very, very challenging, right? And here we are forced to... Um, work on developing a capability that's going to work in an atmosphere where it's minus 50 degrees centigrade, right? So it's really cold. And so the technology that we're working on was really uh, uh, cutting edge, right? We And we had a, a, believe me, we had a lot of opportunities for improvements. We had failures along the way. Um, and if you recall during that time frame, uh, NASA was going to Mars and they had the lander mission that failed. Okay, and so the technology, and, and we were slated, you know, the company I worked for was slated to actually to go on that, that next lander mission that never went. Um, but then uh, NASA said, we have a class A mission. We've got to go up there with the rover. And so when they selected us and we won that competitively, um, which I, I was really cool, they also brought to bear um, the CIA's Power Sources Center, because okay. Power Sources Center is a center of excellence for the intelligence and actually the greater community. And they tapped into that to do the oversight for the development of the technology and the T&E and all of the programs. And that's how I got recruited to come to the CIA, because uh, George Methley, uh, God rest his soul, um, said to me, if you're ever interested in joining our mission, uh, let me know. And so... I did. I put myself into the fray as mid-career, and I literally got my call the morning after 9-11. And so I'm standing at my desk at, in uh, Pawkatuck, Connecticut, and CIA called and said, can you be here next week? And I said, well, no, <laughs> but uh, I did start November 4th, 2001. And when I came, you know, I mean, the days after 9-11 were so you know, I still get goosebumps over all of it because it was so challenging. And, and I just didn't, couldn't say no, but I also had to uh, figure out how we were going to get there. And I thought, oh, a couple of years and then I can go back to industry and, and do whatever. Um, but the problem set that we face in the intelligence community is so complex. It's so challenging. And you, you cannot find those challenges or opportunities anywhere else. The private sector is worried about different things, particularly in battery technology. You're worried about, you know, saving money and supply chain, et cetera, making tens of thousands of things. In the CIA, if we make 10 of something, that may be enough, right? So uh, it's, it's really, that's how I got there. And um, the problems are just too challenging for me to leave until I retire, you know, so. Yeah. I understand completely. And, and I have to think that, uh, you know, if you look at the early days of lithium ion and now you see that it's everywhere, uh, the space program really does drive a lot of advanced technology applications into general society, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and it always has. Right. I mean, because they have to be ahead of things. They want to do things. It takes a long time. And that's really important. Um, everybody wants uh, they think long-term is what's for dinner. Long-term <laughs> is what's, you know, five, 10 years out. And so you've got to be in the uh, prey for the long haul. You've got to want to do technology that matters and that's going to change the way we do things, right? If you think about your cell phone, 
prior to um, uh, uh, lithium ion, I was driving across the country. I was driving from Rhode Island to Utah and I, my cell phone was a great big bag phone that sat, it's as big as this laptop, right? Um, and it sat on the, the hump in the front of the car and that's what cell phone technology was. That's nothing like it. I mean, I mean the computer that yeah. NASA used to take us to the moon, right. you have more compute power in your cell phone right, right. now. Yeah, that's so, that's yeah. And, and you know, you think about that with the next generation of um, uh, microelectronics and what that's going to do and what that enables. Right, right now, one of yeah. our performers on our microelectronics for artificial intelligence is actually got algorithms that are on the NASA uh, mission capstone that's in cislunar orbit. And that's a, it's an R&D platform of looking at next generation capabilities. And so that is really, that was, it's cool to think that we're actually on a mission because we don't typically have that kind of a uh, application for what we're doing. Yeah. So. So that uh, that discussion right there is a great setup for getting into our core topic today uh, of uh, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects activity. Uh, can you give us kind of an overview on what IARPA is, how many people are th there at your group, where you're located, that sort of thing? Uh, tell me about a big picture uh, a, 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 so overview of IARPA. Sure. We're, we're high-risk, high-payoff uh, research and development arm of the intelligence community, right? So we're worried about the gaps and capabilities that what the IC can't do. I tell this to everybody, and it's probably getting old now, but I really want the cloak of invisibility that Harry Potter has. Um, <laughs> and we don't have that in the intelligence community. So we sit, though, within the office of the Director of National Intelligence because we're here to serve the community writ large. All all 18 agencies. And so we're not focused on one mission. We're focused on gaps and capabilities across the community and pulling together those threats and technology that we might develop can transition to multiple agencies. It's not one and done kind of thing. It's not targeted. And so we're located right now in uh, Bethesda, but right here in Washington, D.C. Um, our Researchers, though, are across the country. They're actually across the world. Uh, right now, we have programs that are going in 34 different states, including Minnesota. Um, and, uh, you know, people often think of us as DARPA for spies, right? So that big picture of what we're doing, it's not for defense, it's for intelligence. And so our applications are more, um, more niche, right? They're more nuanced. And their capabilities are really, really um, diverse. We're not uh, Q uh, quite for uh, James Bond, but uh, we really are probably as close as you're going to get for the intelligence community. And we have the benefit of doing really, really diverse uh, research programs that run the gamut from quantum computing and neuroscience to cognitive psychology, sociology, power sources, antennas, even chemical and biological sensing. And so we stay at the forefront of what we need to do. And everybody uses artificial intelligence and machine learning. Those are tools in the toolbox. We don't have a single program that does that. We have multiple programs that use those capabilities to enable next generation um, things like speech translation, uh, facial recognition, and uh, information discovery. So it's really important that we uh, uh, stay really fresh. And so most of uh, our people are only here for three to five years, right? Mm -hmm. Including me, right? We turn over regularly so that the ideas stay fresh. You've got new leadership, new direction, new capabilities. And that is really important for ensuring that the, the organization uh, thrives. And so we're small. We really are small. We're only 41 people um, that are government employees. The rest are really all about our performers that are out there. And we, we do have um, probably 160 or so contractors who work directly with us as force multipliers, part of our team, uh, that uh, are really helping enable our mission. 
It sounds to me so, so you have a high high risk, high reward uh, kind of a mindset. <laughs> what I found it in in uh, environments like that is that there's a strong support for failing fast, failing quickly when you're going to try really advanced technologies. Learn as much as you can by trying lots of different ways and fail quickly so you find the ones that work. Is that is that sort of the mindset you put in play? That is spot on. In fact, on every program that we start, we're going to have multiple technical approaches that we're looking at to see which ones are going to deliver on the um, capabilities. Everything's driven by metrics, right? So you've got to have, and we're not looking for incremental change. We're looking for big changes, orders of magnitude, orders of duration that are much longer, capabilities that are substantially faster, higher accuracy. And that kind of thing you have to do with enough depth that and enough diversity of approaches that you're not tied to any one thing. And one of the things that I'm really trying to do, um, you know, colored perhaps by my background as uh, serving as the chief scientist is I want to ensure that if we've got multiple capabilities that we can deploy uh, against, let's say, facial recognition, that we deploy multiple ones so that we're not tied to a single thread of capability and we're offering different ways. Because the reality is that um, not everybody in the world likes the United States and uh, <laughs> we are. Uh, so if we've got multiple ways to defeat um, our threats, then we provide more capabilities to the IC and our are men and women who are deployed around the world. And so that's, it's really an important aspect of that. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Marsh, and we're discussing the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, or IARPA, which is the U.S. intelligence community's next generation high-end research and development effort. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dr. Marsh, how did IARPA get started? What was the catalyst for creating the organization, and, and how is it funded? Uh, okay. So, uh, the catalyst for starting it was the 9-11 Commission, right? We wanted to ensure that the uh, uh, intelligence community had the same advantage that the uh, Department of Defense had had so long to provide insight and foresight to the capabilities. So we were actually in the 100-day plan and the 500-day plan in the stand-up of uh, the, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So this is our 15th anniversary uh, this year, and uh, we were stood up with that mindset to provide that capability for the IC. Okay. Uh, and let's dive a little more deeply into the work at IARPA. Maybe we can have a little discussion about the Office of Analysis and the Office of Collection. Okay. Uh, what, what areas of analysis are central to IARPA's mission and what kinds of research and developments or programs are inside this branch at IARPA? Okay. Uh, the very definition of intelligence is providing advanced warning of possible events to come. So this requires analytical techniques that can handle massive amounts of data and deliver reliable information to decision makers with enough warning and actions so that, so that actions can be taken to protect the security of our nation and its people. This is an enduring issue that is absolutely not getting any easier. I like to call it the four V's, volume, velocity, variety, and veracity, okay, of the data coming on board. When you're collecting it and it's constantly changing, you have to stay ahead of that. So one of our recently announced programs is actually seeking to develop novel artificial intelligence fuel technologies that are gonna enable intelligence analysts to substantially improve the evidence and reasoning in their analytical reports. And we're gonna be releasing the formal solicitation for that. In fact, today is their industry day. Um, and there are, are a lot of participants in it. It is our largest industry day ever to date. There's over 400 people registered for it. And you can always find out more about it on our website. But after this, we're gonna put that solicitation out. So we're looking for those creative ideas for how do you bring advanced analytical tools to capabilities. And the goal of our collections research is to develop new sensors and detectors, as well as clever ways to collect multimodal data that can reveal 
what our adversaries are attempting to hide from us that will dramatically improve the quality of collected information and means for collecting it from inaccessible denied areas, right? When we're looking for those new signals, when you've got the internet of things and all that collection, how do you process that information to learn intent, right? It's more than just the information, it's gotta be the intent behind it. And so we're also really, really concerned about um, what we call ubiquitous technical surveillance, right? So there's cameras everywhere, everything that you do, right? Your cell phone is connected and wired. It hits off of a cell phone tower and that gives a ping and a signal of where you are. So think about that. If you're trying to be a spy somewhere, right? And you're wired up, how do you get, how do you move, right? How do you figure that out? And so we're in the process of developing um, a wide variety of next generation sensors. And one that we're really worried about is, you know, if you walk into an environment or you want, want to walk into an environment, are there aerosols, okay, or things out there that can, um, that are in the way that are going to possibly take you into harm's way? So how do you know that ahead of time, right? We're also really... Um, you know, to enable those next generation sensors, and sorry, but this is where I am, Battery Geek is my middle name, okay, <laughs> is we're really worried about next generation power capabilities, and so we've got a huge advanced battery research program going on, um, and, and what we do is not what the private sector is going to do, right? The private sector is not worried about giving us performance in extreme environments. Like I mentioned, when we're on Mars, you're at minus 50. Well, you can be in the middle of the desert and be at 130, right? And so if you've got a leave behind sensor that you want to put in some extreme environment, right now, the duration of such a thing is very short. And what we want is a minimum of two years in those extreme environments. So we're working on developing capabilities that do that for the community. But the great thing about that is that the private sector benefits from it because most of this is dual use, right? We're, we're working on um, new chemistry that is based um, in Colorado on uh, a, a small company there called Solid Power is doing a true solid state uh, battery that uses fool's gold, right? Um, so this is, this is novel, right? We're talking about a, a system that's using something that's domestic, which is great. And we've got another company that's up in Massachusetts that's got a really advanced cathode material that they're licensing out to um, the, the rest of the world, but they're going to manufacture it here in this country for the intelligence community. So we've got a domestic supply chain. So we're, that's, those are just two of eight performers on that program that are looking at different approaches to give us that really long endurance that I might need for a UAV mission. So think about, um, you know, flying for long periods of time. And, you know, uh, isn't it Amazon who wants to deliver packages by UAV, right? It is. <laughs> They're going to benefit from the uh, capabilities that we're doing because we need those UAVs to do other things, right? And so we look at that kind of technology where we have the the needs that the private sector that are really beyond the private sector. I mean, if the private sector is going to do it, great, we're going to leverage that. But we're looking at those holes and nobody's ever going to make these kinds of investments. Yeah. So you brought up uh, supply chain challenges. Uh, so much of the high-end technology that we have uh, in, in society today and certainly in, in the national security arena uh, for DOD and even the intelligence community relies really heavily on, uh, on rare earths. Uh, yep. I do know because I tried to keep keep a pace of these things that there is a lot of research uh, going into finding ways to create uh, power solutions that don't require uh, rare earths or or, or uh, yep. circuitry that doesn't require rare earths and things like that. Is that part of what uh, IARP is working on as well, or is that a different? No, no, we have programs that are absolutely. Um affected one affected by the supply chain. I just had to give a three month extension to uh, several performers yesterday because they can't get what they need. But also, um, you know, in our microelectronics for um, 
micro E for AI program, we are looking at next generation capabilities that don't rely on those as part of what they're doing. We are that don't rely on the rare earths as part of what they're doing. Are there novel biological circuits that we can use instead? So yeah, we're we're looking in that what I like to call the art of possible and what might be out there that we can look at and invest in to give us some of those uh, higher reliability things. The, the benefit that we quite honestly have in the, in the intelligence community, and this is going to sound crazy, uh, but we don't care how much things cost. Now that sounds crazy <laughs> because yes, we do care how much things cost, but not not to the extent that we're not going to look at that and do that because if it gives us a capability that we don't have any other way and we only need 10 of something, we're likely to want to make that kind of investment. It's not the same kind of uh, uh, optic or same kind of decision uh, metric that you might have on other things. So we do explore some of those really novel you know, uh, materials and capabilities that others just can't. Yeah. And, and so you're, you're leading the organization. Uh, so you have to manage uh, resources like budgets and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, there a, is there a kind of a balance between the Office of Analysis and the Office of Collection as far as research goes? Or is collection, because it's so much, uh, so much technology in so many different areas, is that, a, is that more heavily funded than the analysis piece? So the, it's an interesting question. So we we just uh, we don't distinguish necessarily what how much money we're going to put to collection or how much money we're going to put to analysis. But it is absolutely true that our analysis programs cost substantially less to do than our collections programs. When you're building hardware, it costs much much more. Um, but data sets, and, and this, this is not something to, data sets are critically important and data sets are very expensive um, to collect and annotate to ensure that you've got ground truth. And so one of the things that we do, uh, like on our Briar program, which is uh, biometric recognition at uh, distance and range. And so if you can imagine, I wanna figure out what exactly you look like from the top of a building, right? And, and how do you do that? I've got to collect data sets that are doing that. And they were tremendously expensive to collect and annotate. And so, but if I don't have the data set, then I can't work on the research that our performers need to execute the program. So we do a lot of that and make that available to um, the rest of the intelligence community. If we've already paid for it, that's one of the products, if you will, that we transition to the community so that it has much more far-reaching impact of that. So yes, our collections programs are definitely more expensive. (laughs) So you bring up a good point. Uh, just one last question before we have to take just a short break uh, for our sponsor. Uh, most people have probably been paying attention in the news to the fact that China has been collecting data sets everywhere they can find them all around the world. The big data is really the operation, the operative uh, term here. Uh, and they're doing it, uh, as, as I understand it, because they're trying to feed the algorithms for machine learning to advance as quickly as possible in the areas of artificial intelligence. Uh, is that what uh, is that what IARPA is assessing that China is doing as well? Uh, what, what what thoughts do you have on that? So we don't we don't do an assessment of China. Uh, that's that's uh, we're not we don't have an operational mission, but. Uh, the collection of data sets is what informs artificial intelligence, no matter how you're collecting it, where it's coming from. And the more diverse data sets that you have, the better off your algorithms are going to be because you can train them over a broader sector of what you're doing. So um, if, if you're only, for example, training your uh, facial recognition uh, capabilities on uh, white men, then they're not going to have uh, as easy a time detecting the correct face of a uh, Asian woman. All right. So that we have to ensure that diversity. And so the more data that you have, no matter how you're collecting it, the more diverse um, information you have to uh, train your algorithms. And that's uh, a very important thing to do if you want to do uh, collection. Uh, So, Dr. Marshall, we have to take just a short break. Uh, We'll be back with you in about 45 seconds. Okay. 
National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And Dr. Marsh, we're, uh, we're back. Uh, I want to talk about one of the other offices there at, uh, at IARPA. What, what's the role of the Office of Research and Technology Protection? And how do you transition the advancements made at IARPA into the broader U.S. intelligence community? Great question. Uh, Research and technology protection, RTP, is critical for everything that we do. So the first step when you want to uh, get a program approved is get the boss, me, to say yay verily to it. And the second step is RTP. And we call it RTP as a short acronym for research and technology protection because it is a security risk management framework that identifies and safeguards information impacting national security. It is a best practice across the U.S. government and was actually um, recognized by Director Clapper as that um, because what it does, it, it has the goal to balance innovative research, next generation capabilities, and national security so that we can facilitate working at um, the, the lowest level possible. And I like to think about it as this is the tool that we use to clearly set the lanes in the road. It teaches us where the information goes from unclassified to for official use only, confidential, secret, top secret, or even into a compartment, right? And a lot of the programs that we have, no, not a lot, every program that we have has a classified aspect to it. But because we use the research and protect technology protection protocols and we go through and we um, put those lanes in the road so crisply, we're allowed to go out and do unclassified research that gets the best and the brightest minds in the world to participate, right? We don't limit it just to U.S. citizens with clearances. And so that opens the aperture for getting really great ideas from the best and really unique teams and bring in those really diverse ideas. It also allows us to assess the market and where capabilities truly are. And so the goals of, of RTP are to allow us to collaborate across the IC and the government so that we can characterize the global interest in the relevant research. And then the researchers um, are identified and we evaluate the vulnerabilities that can be posed by that particular either research or the fact that we're interested in a particular capability. And then we worry about identifying what those risks are and we provide the guidance to the program managers who often, right, I said that they only come here for three to five years. They don't, they're not steeped in the intelligence community often. And so how do they get that exposure and make sure that they have the guidance they need to protect the information, to protect the strategies about the information, how things might be collected. We worry about export controls, and we put all of the potentials for classification down on paper, right at the get-go. When you have all that information, there's no guessing, right? You know where you're, uh, where you're going wrong, and you know where you're, where you're in the clear. And so that is so powerful for folks that we have actually exported this to DARPA, to um, all parts of the intelligence community, to the uh, quantum information science uh, uh, subcommittee for national intelligence. And we, we do this as a best practice. And the key thing about it is you can't, you, it's not one and done. It's every six months. It's a repetitive process because things change and we are you know, on the edge of that awareness. And so when, because we're doing this, and because we partner, you know, from the beginning of an idea, 
with our IC partners, they understand where those uh, boundaries are. And, and on one of our programs, one of the uh, one of our IC partners, I won't say who, uh, said, well, we don't want you to tell anybody about that. And I said, but it's not classified, right? And if it's not classified and it's R&D, you, you need to let the world know. And, and so that's really important. And if we have our partners with us right from the get-go, then at the end of our investment, which is usually a very large investment, they're ready to take it and to continue the, the you know, we'll get it to a prototype. So they'll finish the development and they will operationalize it and they will put it into mission for what they're going to, how they're going to use it. And so because we've done that homework up front with RTP, it's actually uh, correct or poised to be able to enable their mission without compromising their mission in any way. Okay. So it's really uh, a couple of quick follow-up questions, if I may, on that topic, just to sort of help our listeners to understand. I, I'm pretty sure I get it because I was a career intelligence officer, uh, mm-hmm. and I actually was fortunate enough to be a what, what's called a plank owner. You 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 know what that term is, uh, yeah. but one of the original people on a program. Uh, called the Special Reconnaissance Capabilities Program down at U.S. Special Operations Command. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that was back in the uh, in the mid-90s. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that takes us back. But I know it. <laughs> so uh, um, when you talk about trying to protect something, so the mere, so from an intelligence community perspective, uh, indicators, right? The intelligence community is always looking for indicators. Yep. Uh, if there is knowledge out there that you're looking for a particular type of technology, that in and of itself can be an indicator of what it is you might use it for, right? So that's is that part of why you need to protect this so well? That is at spot on, right? And we don't we don't want anyone to uh, know where our vulnerabilities are, right? Because that that opens up an attack vector. Um, and so when that's why we do this so carefully with how we protect it so that we really, when we go out with an unclassified research program, we've got a use case that's truly unclassified that that supports what this research is and where we're going to take it for the next generation capabilities, right? I mean, there's nothing uh, classified necessarily about speech recognition capabilities, right? But uh, some of the languages that we really care about are, are, you're not going to find on Google Translate, right? right. So, uh, and, and I love Google Translate. There's nothing wrong with it, but we're we're really about those capabilities that you can't get, right? When you're worried about Farsi and Pashto and and you know very unique dialects of languages from you know North Korea or something like that, uh, we we need to be smart about it. So you have a certain amount of a budget. Uh, so you you work up these prototype ideas or capabilities. When you say you transition to transition it to intelligence community uh, partners, uh, those major or agencies and and uh, organizations across the U.S. intelligence community, they have a lot more funding to go ahead and and uh, operationalize those capabilities. Is that, is that sort of how you transition from a prototype capability into a widely used? capability out there for collection purposes or analytical purposes, for instance? Yes. And and one of the things that I learned um, early on, because as, as you mentioned, I was the deputy director. And so when I came on board, it was towards the end of our fifth year of, of being in existence. And we were ready to start transitioning our, um, our first set of technologies. And we hadn't formed those partnerships early on with our, the IC community. And as a result, the capabilities that we were developing there um, really were not, uh, they weren't jumping at taking them, right? Because they didn't, uh, they, they hadn't been part of that process all the way along. And so that's why when, I'm, when I am working with the program managers and the office directors here, it's like, who are your partners? If you don't have partners at the table who are clamoring for for what we're doing, then we shouldn't be making this investment on behalf of the community. There's got to be someone who wants it. And and in fact, uh, one of the programs that we had going, which was having some really exquisite results, uh, at the end of the day, when it was the end of a phase of of the program, there was nobody in the IC who said, we want this. 
And so we ended the program. We ended it early because we shouldn't be making that investment if there's not going to be somebody. I, and that's that comes from my early uh, days of research working for the Navy when the technology that we had developed got put on the shelf. And um, I was really frustrated by that uh, as a young researcher. And and so technology that matters, right? That's That's what I'm all about. And that's what this organization is all about. And so being able to say that our facial recognition technology is the state of the art for the community, right? That the FBI is using that matters, right? And so while we don't do those kinds of missions, they do, and they've got that capability. If you remember not too very long ago, maybe seven, eight years, when you got your license picture, it was like this mugshot straight on, right? They have changed that now because I just got my license a little bit. And that is because facial recognition technology at that time could only do straight on pictures. And now they can do off angle up to 180 degrees as a result of the capabilities that we helped develop on our program. So it sounds to me like you have a strong, a very strong emphasis on customer support, customer orientation. Yes, yes. Um, and and it, it's, if we don't do that, then um, why are we here? Right? Yeah, yeah. So as I understand it, you mentioned a little bit, uh, IARPA provides a significant degree of public access to your research. Uh, you talk about all these cases have a have a public component to them. Can you can you can you expound on that process a bit? I mean, are your partners uh, industry partners, or are they partners in the academic research uh, institutes at the universities? How, how does all that work? How how are your partnerships developed? Over over our history, right? We've had uh, somewhere on the order I want to say eighty one programs to date, and we've had over twenty five hundred unique bidders. Okay, and and we have many of. Uh, repeat bidders uh, to our program, so that's unique. Right now we have uh, approximately 240 active contracts, okay, with um, universities, um, so academia, uh, large businesses and small businesses. Right now our our fraction looks like about 50% academia, it's actually 47% academia, uh, and about uh, 32% small businesses and the balance is large businesses. So we're we're spread out. It was 50, 25, and 25 not too long ago. Um, and so what we encourage everybody to do, critically important, is to, uh, one, we don't put restrictions on their publications, right? We ask for a courtesy copy to do pre-pub review. We don't want anyone to do something that, you know, that is a speculation. Um, but uh, we've have right now well over 3,000 papers that are published out there, many in science and nature. Um, they're available on Google Docs. They're quite, quite well uh, annotated and uh, accessed, and, and some, several have won awards. Um, so we make that all, all that fundamental research available to the community. And notably, that's our performers' research, right? Our, program managers' names are not on that research. Um, and we also heavily encourage people to patent. And off the top of my head, I don't know the number of patents we have, um, but they own the patents, not the government. Okay, we ask for government purpose rights so that you know we can use the technology within the framework that supports the government, but that they can commercialize it and they can take that and and make a business out of the investments that have been made. And a number of things have been patented over time from, you know, uh, quantum and, you know, certainly the battery technology that's going on and a wide variety of other um, machine learning tools. So that's you how beat we... Me to the, yeah, you beat me to the punch because I was thinking to myself, there's got to be a, an awful lot of intellectual property rights issues with this whole situation. Yeah, they're, they're uh, right up front. We um, one of our criteria when we're evaluating the proposals is the type of government purpose rights that uh, we're we're going to have at the end of it. And uh, sometimes that negotiation can be difficult, uh, but we're we're you know sometimes the research is so fundamental that it's there's no restrictions and they don't want any. The researchers don't want any rights, but but. Uh, we, we only ask for government purpose rights. And that's so that that enables, if we don't have that, that uh, um, 
is it a restriction or that clause in our contracts, then, then we can't transition the technology from us to our partners across the community. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Catherine Marsh, and we're discussing the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, or IARPA, which is the U.S. intelligence community's next-generation high-end research and development effort. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dr. Marsh, we have about 15 minutes left this morning. Uh, I'm always amazed at how fast this uh, hour flies by while we're on the air. Uh, what, uh, let me ask you about the future. So we, we hear a lot of the news about you know new technologies that are out there, new capabilities, uh, cutting edge stuff. And that's really what IARPA is there to do for the, for the intelligence community. Uh, science and technology is changing so rapidly around the world. I have to think that there are people at IARPA that are constantly looking out onto the horizon to figure out what the next capabilities should be. Uh, research areas that you want to dive into and that you probably have partners within the intelligence community that are telling you every day, hey, can you look into this? Can you look into that? Uh, what, what do you see on the horizon for IARPA's uh, research and development? Okay, um, happy to. And, and yes, they do. They say, hey, can you go and do this? Can you make an investment in that? Well, that's a requirement. Okay, if I have a requirement and I know what I need, then that's not where we belong. We're all about challenges. I want to know what you can't do, right? And so we're, we're looking at, you know, what are the things that we can't do today that really enable that? And so what we're going to start in the next couple of months, it's actually uh, just just about finished source selection, is this brand new program, which is based on smart textiles or computerizing clothing um, under our program named Smarty Pants. Um, and that program is poised to be one of the largest research efforts in smart textiles. And what they're trying to do is to disrupt the wearable technology market by doing away with those annoying sensors and um, things that are attached to us and sever. We want to sever the dependency so that you can put on a shirt and go walk into a building and do collection and have capabilities and come out and then throw it in the washing machine and do it again tomorrow, right? And so you can't do that today. And so how do you do that? And, and think about the commercial sector would love that as well, right? And so we also are really focused on um, uh, a new field that is emerging in the field of what we call cyber psychology, right? So the scientific field, this field is really emergent, and it might be the first time anybody's ever heard about it. But this is the idea of how you might exploit the brain's weaknesses to engineer state-of-the-art cyber defenses so you can confound or confuse the mind of a hacker. And so this new program, which we're going to have the Proposers Day on the 28th of February, and if you're interested, you can sign up on our our website, or at least find the link to it. But we're also really worried about um, emerging capabilities in cybersecurity, right? How do we ensure that, right? Even this morning, there was that big um, hiccup, uh, at least here on the, the entire country, right? Through FAA, where yeah. it shut down all flight operations, right? right? And so how do you prevent those kinds of things? And so worrying about cybersecurity, worrying video analytics, okay, how do you how do you know what people are collecting and what that tells you and how much you uh, need to spoof it, perhaps? Um, really um, uh, focused on mis, mal, and disinformation, that is key for next generation capabilities and staying ahead of it. And the other one, and, and this one kind of keeps me up at night is the uh, bioinformation and biosecurity, right? Because the, the thing about bio is you can't tell intent and being at the forefront of that, right? You know, <clears throat> on our Felix program, uh, it's Felix, right? And uh, our Felix program, that it was targeted. It's a program that's targeted at genetic engineering and figuring out, okay, what whether a DNA molecule, so the molecule that makes you who you are, has been changed in any way. Well, I can. We now have tools that can do that, 
but you have to figure out intent, right? Is this something that happens accidentally or is it happen? Is it something that is done intentionally, right? You go in there and you snip two things out and you take it and you do it over and over again as a, as a matter of fact, right? And so what we did on the Felix program and the Broad Institute, they were able to use the technology developed for that to debunk right up front that COVID-19 was not a, um, a, a truly an aberration that happened naturally in the environment, right? And so having those tools and those capabilities translate to a wide variety of things. And so, you know, we talk, started the, we may have not have started the day, but you were telling me about your fog, your freezing fog. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we also have to be worried about climate change, right? Because climate change and what's going to give us new capabilities to uh, predict and to be aware of and to monitor, to be able to have early detection of things that are impacted. If we can't grow food everywhere in the world and, and get it to where we need it to, you know, it matters, right? I, I personally am appalled that I have to pay $5 for a dozen of eggs right now because something is going on in this country with, with uh, the, the birds, um, the chickens that lay the eggs, right? And so how do you know something like that's going to happen ahead of time, right? We worry about that. We also worry about what's beyond um, 5G. Everybody now has 5G phones. What's what's next, right? Is it, We call it 6G and beyond, but is it still G, right? Uh, we don't know. And, and so getting ahead of that to understand what threats might be out there and emerging, because we really, in the, in the IC, we worry about the social, the economic, and the political stability of nations around the world. And so being ahead of any of the changes that might affect that is where we're trying to frame programs. And so I wish I had the crystal ball that said I need to do a program in X. And so it's really about, and we're also not big enough to do everything, right? Um, but it's finding great program managers who have a great idea that want to come and, and have enough money to really move the needle on that technology that they want to invest in. And so it's really uh, when you see a researcher who really has this great idea, it's magical. It, it is so, they're so psyched about what they're doing. That's what they can see. And, and they will dedicate themselves. I mean it, dedicate themselves to giving it their all, they, to get their program uh, out there, to get it recognized, and to make sure that their performers have all the support that they need to thrive in, in what they're doing. So it sounds to me that, that there really isn't any limitations in the areas of research and development that IARPA could potentially tackle. It really is based on what the customer needs. So you could you could be in physics, you could be in chemistry, you could be in biology, you could be in high-end uh, technology areas. Is, is, that, is that basically correct? That's absolutely true. We have um, uh, such a diversity of, of uh, team members, right? I mean, my degree is in chemistry, but I've got people with AI backgrounds. I've got um, a philosopher. I have uh, an astrophysicist. I have um, um, multiple engineers, both electrical and mechanical. I have a cyber expert. Um, and, you know, what you went to school for doesn't necessarily mean that that's where you're going to evolve your R&D expertise. It's really about passion, right? It's what do you really care about and what do you want to change? And uh, that's, that's, that's an important um, note that I'm looking for when I'm selecting the team members who want to be part of IARPA. So unfortunately, we only have about five minutes left. <laughs> but oh, wow. I do have a couple of quick uh, final questions for you. I reviewed the uh, IARPA website uh, in preparation for the show. I noted that most of your personnel are people with advanced degrees, especially with doctorates uh, like what you have. Uh, what is the path someone should pursue if they wish to seek a position at IARPA? Uh, do you have do you, and do you offer internships to undergraduate or graduate students? Uh, so. Uh... 
No, we don't, um, because we are, we're term limited. And so we don't have the, and we don't do the research in-house, right? Okay. okay. So what we do is we sponsor, um, along with the ODNI, the um, IC, the Intelligence Communities Postdoctoral uh, program. And so we sponsor about 10 postdocs a year on different research areas. And so that program is open right now. And I think it closes in February timeframe. And so folks can find out more about that, both from our website, but also the ODNI's website on, on that. But if somebody's interested in becoming a program manager at IARPA, what they should do is reach out to us, um, either through our website or other contact info on our website is there for everybody. Uh, but to our two office directors, uh, Dr. Pedro Espina and um, uh, Rob Raymer, and uh, analysis is Rob and Pedro is collections, and talk to them about the idea that they have, what they're interested in doing, because we're going to hire you if you're passionate about something and if you've got a great idea or a big challenge that you see that you want to bring to bear to the community. And what Pedro and Rob will do is help shape that um, idea that you have if it's got legs and they'll turn it, they'll work with you to turn it into a viable what we call a new start pitch, a new program idea that then ultimately comes uh, to me to see, you know, how that fits into our, our community. And, and you, um, you meet with me and uh, with your office director and potentially uh, have your idea approved. And then we put you in process to bring you on board and clear you, et cetera. So, uh, and, and the, the, depending upon the level of clearance that you may need, it may take more time than I wish it did. But the good news is right now is that we now have uh, first of that you don't have to move to Washington, D.C. to be viable as a researcher. We now have approved um, beyond the beltway uh, authority to hire people and put them in place where they are. I have a researcher who is part of my team who actually resides in San Diego. Um, so that's that helps with bringing diversity and attracting more talent because Washington isn't for everybody, right? And it's a little expensive out there. So <laughs> it's a lot expensive out here. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Marsha, I, I like to give my guests the final word at the end of our show. Uh, what didn't I ask you today about IARPA that I should have asked you, or what are critical thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with about the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects activity? Uh, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I think, you know, as, as we talked about, I think partnerships, that is key for how IARPA conducts all of our, our businesses and our cutting edge researchers. And if we don't do that and do it well, um, I like to say we're better together, right? And so knowing and understanding where things are and where, uh, where people view the gaps in capabilities is really uh, important for us to thrive. And I think the other thing is that um, IARPA has been the launch point for really critical things, right? Um, in uh, 2012, uh, Dr. Dave Weinland, who was a researcher on our multi-qubit coherent operations program, so one of our quantum programs, was selected as the Nobel Prize laureate in physics, right? Um, yeah, Craig Gentry in 2014, who was with our Security and Privacy Assurance Program, was selected as the MacArthur Foundation Fellow for his work. Um, Stacy Dixon, uh, Dr. Stacy Dixon, yeah, right, is now right. the Principal Deputy Director for National Intelligence. Um, uh, Dr. Jason um, Matheny, right? So Jason Matheny was the uh, was a program manager at IARPA. He ran our largest forecasting program ever, but he went on to become the director. And then he was in the White House and served as the deputy assistant director uh, to President Biden for technology and national security. And now he's the president of Rand Corporation. So folks, IARPA is a great place to go to leverage cool things to do follow on in uh, your career. And so we're, we're really... Um, we're really small, but it's a great team to be part of, to really know that you're making a difference on behalf of the, uh, on behalf of the nation, right? We serve and we're here to serve. And I think that that camaraderie of what you do to change um, the direction in the future 
really matters. I think that's what's most important. Unfortunately, we have reached the end of uh, today's edition of uh, National Security this week. Uh, Dr. Catherine Marsh, Director of the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, thank you for taking time from your very busy schedule uh, to join us this morning. Are, are there any additional resources you might highlight for our, for our listeners so they can learn more about IARPA? Key, key is to go to our website, right? Everything about our programs and do not hesitate to reach out to our program managers, our office directors and me, right? Our contact info is all on that website and uh, we welcome the opportunity to engage uh, with you. And if, if you want even to come and visit uh, with you. Dr. Catherine Marsh, thank you so much. Thank you. You have a great day. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.